Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. In 1997, Hong Kong was released from British rule and handed over to China. When this happened, the United Kingdom in Beijing struck a deal that guaranteed the freedom of Hong Kong citizens. The territory was to remain free from mainland China's authority for 50 years. Hong Kong established its own governmental and economic systems and flourished, growing into one of the most prosperous regions in the world. But now the People's Republic of China has broken its promise. Beijing plans to impose a new national security law that would end Hong Kong's independence, and protesters demanding democracy are being silenced. Joining me this week to shed light on the new bill and unrest in Hong Kong is Helen Rowley, author and speaker. As always, resources for this episode are linked in our show notes at blog.acton.org. This week, I am speaking with Helen Rowley. She's a senior contributor at The Federalist, and she's the author of several books, including Confucius Never Said. We've had her on the podcast a few times before, and I'll link those episodes in the show notes. Helen, thank you so much for coming on again. Thank you for having me. Helen, it's been almost a year since we brought you on to the podcast to talk about Hong Kong's proposed extradition bill. This bill would have allowed individuals living in Hong Kong to be extradited to China's mainland. But fortunately, it wasn't passed. But now Beijing is again trying to crack down on Hong Kong. And they're doing this with a new national security law. So before we go on, can you help me put all of this into some more context? Because although Hong Kong is obviously part of the region of the People's Republic of China, they are technically supposed to have their own governing system, correct? Uh, yes. So under the one country, two system framework that China committed to with the United Kingdom, um, China is supposed to, the central government in Beijing is supposed to make the decisions on foreign policy and the defense and on behalf of Hong Kong. But other than that, other than foreign policy and defense, Hong Kong is supposed to enjoy this semi-autonomous uh, status for uh, for 50 years, which Hong Kong will have its own independent, supposedly independent legislature and the judicial system. Um, what happens last? So because Hong Kong, uh, because this framework, the existence of this framework, Hong Kong was able to have separate. Uh, established separate uh, trade treaties as well as extra, extradition treaties with other countries, including the United States, um, because United countries like the United States felt comfortable that uh, they can have an extradition agreement with Hong Kong, knowing that Hong Kong will not pass down uh, any supposedly criminals to to China, because we all know um, China's judicial system is not independent, and uh, people who are charged um, do not enjoy due process. And so what happened last year was um, Hong Kong's um, chief executive, uh, Carrie Lam, she tried to rush this uh, extradition bill through the Hong Kong legislature. Uh, legislature. Basically, the bill, like you described, will enable Beijing to demand Hong Kong to hand over whoever 
that uh, Beijing deemed as a criminal. As we know, uh, how Beijing defines criminal is very vague. Basically, any human rights activist, any dissident uh, disagree with uh, the Communist Party will be deemed as a criminal. So Hong Kong people stood up for, uh, you know, to fight against this, this bill. And it turned, as we discussed last time, it turned out uh, they had um, Hong Kong people turn out in large masses. We saw uh, protests in one million, two million peaceful protests. And so what happens is they become frustrated because the Hong Kong government refused to back off initially. And for several months, they refused to back off. So some of the pro peaceful protests eventually turned violent. The, the pro younger protesters and the pro Hong Kong police engaged in a violent uh, clash. So eventually, um, the uh, Hong Kong chief, Carrie Lam, backed off that uh, she first put the bill on hold, and then she finally withdrew the, withdrew the bill towards the end of the year. Another significant event since we last talked towards the end of the year was uh, Hong Kong held this uh, district election, a district-level election. In the past, it's, it's an election nobody cares because, you know, at the district level, you mostly elect a representative to to t take care about the garbage collection and the water dispute, things like that. But uh, in last December, this, uh, this uh, district election became very important because that's the only closest to free election that the Hong Kongers have. And the protesters and their supporters turn out, um, they, they turn out to have a huge landslide win of the district election, which really shocked Beijing. Um, so this, uh, because for the longest time, Beijing and Hong Kong government try to tell the world that uh, the protesters are just a very small group of uh, Hong Kongers. They do not represent the Hong Kongers. They do not have, you know, popular support. But when the Hong Kong um, pro-democracy activists won the district election, the landslide towards the end of the year, even after many people disagree with some of the violent tactics that uh, they used, the violent account, you know, clashed with the police, that really shook the core to Beijing and it really uh, discredited Beijing's claim. That kind of leads to why Beijing wanted to impose this national security law this year, uh, completely bypassing Hong Kong's legislature. So it's essentially um, revenge, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's a revenge and a punishment. Now, since Hong Kong has been operating independent of Beijing's authoritarian rule for a while now, they've experienced an immense amount of economic freedom. Can you give us a clearer picture of that? What kind of life and freedoms have the people of Hong Kong enjoyed? Well, pe people of Hong Kong enjoy something that, um, in, you know, not accessible to majority of the Chinese in mainland China, in mainland, living in mainland China. So in Hong Kong, for example, on the economic front, there's no capital control. So capitals can freely flow. And this is important because for the rest of the China, that the Chinese government set a limit that each Chinese citizen can only transfer 50,000 uh, U.S. dollars each year outside of, outside of China. And this really limits many Chinese for getting their money out of China or try to buy properties outside of China. But Hong Kongers do not have that restriction. So many rich Chinese actually park their monies in Hong Kong as the first step before they move their capitals out, out of China. Um, Hong Kongers also enjoyed for the longest time since the uh, British 
uh, government took over Hong Kong after the OPM war, Hong Kongers have enjoyed a tremendous uh, economic freedom. They can easily start a business. The cost of uh, start a business is very low, and there's very little regulation, and the the tax you know the tax is very low. So everything is created from the economic standpoint to encourage entrepreneur entrepreneurship. So so with Hong Kong, you you if you go there. Um, you you just feel this vibrant of an economy that uh, every, you know everybody is hurry to start something something new, and that creativity is really stem you know grow out of this free economic system. That is why Dr. Milton Freeman in his uh, famous PBS show Free to Choose he featured Hong Kong in his very ap- very first episode. Because think about this, when the British took over Hong Kong. Um, after 1841, Hong Kong was just a fishing village. It had it had absolutely no natural resource other than close to a natural harbor. It had absolutely no natural resource. And nowadays, it has 7.5 million inhabitants. So it's densely populated. Why it is on a standalone basis? Hong Kong is one of the richest places, you know, on the, on this planet. Even though it has absolutely no natural resources, it's because it's free economic system that fostered this prosperity that Hong Kongers have been able to enjoy for over 100 years. Mm. And Hong Kong has been named one of the freest economies um, in the world for many years. For many years. Not anymore. So let's talk about that. What are the details of this new national security law? Last month, you wrote an article titled, Beijing Effectively Ends Hong Kong's Historic Freedoms. In the opening, you write that, quote, May 22nd, 2020 will go down in history as an important milestone. On this day, Beijing announced it will impose a new national security law on Hong Kong, which will effectively end the one country, two systems era. So what what is exactly in this national security law? How would this national security law affect Hong Kong? This national security law will affect Hong Kong in two ways. First, it's content. Then, it's the way it gets passed. So, first, it's content. Um, Beijing argued that the Hong Kong's basic law, which is a de facto constitution of Hong Kong, uh, in the Article 23 of this basic law, basically mandate Hong Kong, the city, should have a national security law, which outlaw things such as treason and the secession. Um, so. But, but I explained in the article about the, the history of the basic law. The basic law was really a product of the central government, which was Beijing, uh, because when this law was drafted back in the 19, between late 1980s to early 1990s, um, several of the Hong Kong representatives in the committee, joined the committee who, you know, drafting this law, including Martin Lee, who's regarded as the father of a democracy in Hong Kong. So in, we all know what happened in 1989. In 1989, after the Tiananmen Square massacre, um, Martin Lee and several of the pro-democracy Hong Kong representatives in this committee, drafting committee, basically quit as a protest, you know, to the China's, uh, Beijing's brutality against the unarmed, peaceful uh, protesters in Tiananmen Square. And several months later, they wanted to come back to finish the drafting of the, you know, this basic law, and China wouldn't let them come back. So this basic law was not a output of, like China claimed, was not an output of a joint, you know, 
a product that reflects what Hong Kong people's wish. It's really a product of, you know, Beijing's wish. But even in this product that the, uh, totally represents Beijing's wish, in Article 23, it still stipulates that Hong Kong, the city, should have a national law, uh, national security law. And the national security law on itself is not controversial because many countries, you know, like Beijing argued, many countries have that. Uh, many countries outlaw, you know, treason in the secession attempt. Um, so, but what Beijing's uh, doing now, and also Hong Kong authority tried to pass this law uh, in the early 2000, you know, uh, 2000s, and people took to street, Hong Kongers took to streets, protested. So the Hong Kong authorities withdrew never brought it back up again. Um, the reason now that the people are still, Hong Kongers still strongly against this law is, again, it's based on this regime, what Beijing is trying to do. Because instead of, instead of just simply outlaw things such as treason and secession, Beijing, what Beijing's attempt is really try to outlaw anyone, any speech, any act that disagree or disapproved by Beijing. That is really makes people worried because, you know, even, uh, for example, even some hedge fund managers, foreign hedge fund managers uh, plan to move out of Hong Kong, you know, when this law is starting to take effect because Beijing outlawed the short selling, right? So they consider short selling a criminal act. So hedge fund managers are now considered that if they got involved in short selling, then Hong Kong authorities will hand them over to you know, to China to be persecuted. So that just reflects the expensiveness, um, how expensive this law, how broadly, you know, the, the areas this law try to cover. So that's one thing about this law that is so troubling. And um, another example is China, in mainland China, uh, Beijing has used this law against uh, uh, human rights activists and the dissidents. Uh, if you recall Liu Xiaobo, uh, China's... Um, a, a, a Chinese uh, human rights activist who won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he was charged under China, the mainland China's national security law uh, because he basically pro, uh, promoted democracy, and for that reason, China charged him for you know treason and put him under the basically you know in jail for the rest of his life, and he passed away a couple of years ago. So those are the examples which worries Hong Kongers that. Um, you know, if they have this same law, many of their freedom of speech and freedom assembly will seriously you know, jeopardized. So that's one reason why this law is so troublesome. And the second reason why this law is troublesome is the manner it gets passed. Again, even the basic law, Hong Kong's de facto constitution, requires Hong Kong, Hong Kong's legislature, to pass this law. But Beijing took advantage of a the, their two session meeting, their national Congress, you know, Congress meeting in late May. Beijing basically drafted the law by itself, totally bypassed the Hong Kong legislature, and then have the National People's Congress rubber stamped it. So there's no uh, debate, there's no uh, deliberation. It's basically Beijing says this is what we want and the National Congress is stamped on it. So it's a totally bypass the Hong Kong's legislature. As we discussed earlier, what does one country, two system mean? It means Hong Kong should enjoy its own legislative and judicial independence to pass their own laws. If, and when Beijing, not if, 
when Beijing decided to totally bypass Hong Kong's judicial independence, bypass Hong Kong's legislature, and create a law then forcefully imposed on Hong Kong, then that's essentially killed one country, two system, you know, model. And that's also Beijing's most blunt act to break its commitment to that framework. So both the content of law and the manner it gets passed really troubling to Hong Kongers. So when it comes to the timing of China ending Hong Kong's autonomy, there's also something unique about this time because COVID-19 has exploded around the world. So I'm wondering, what are the geopolitics behind this? Is China possibly feeling uh, weaker or at least now feeling the need to strengthen itself by taking advantage of Hong Kong's benefits? I actually think it's the opposite. I think the Chi- what the Chinese have been doing, uh, back in March, I wrote an article about how Beijing tried to take advantage of the coronavirus um, when the rest of the world, because it started in China, and uh, but since March, when Xi Jinping, after Xi Jinping visited the Wuhan, declared, you know, China won the People's War, um, then the coronavirus has spread it throughout the rest of the world, and the rest of the world was busy fighting the pandemic. So I think Beijing saw that as an opportunity for it to take a harder stand against Hong Kong. And we see Beijing's doing that on the border with India and in South China Sea and in its bullying against Australia. You see, Beijing think this pandemic now actually give it a opportunity, window opportunity, we need to think other countries are too busy try to fight back a you know pandemic domestically, they will they will have no resource or they will they can't afford to spend the resources or pay much attention to what's going on, you know, outside their countries. So Beijing thinks this is a window opportunity to strengthen its uh, a geopolitical influence and control. And it definitely there's a revenge against Hong Kong. And and be, even before this national security law, I mentioned in my article, Beijing already took a several uh, actions, you know, they are through Hong Kong authorities. You know, they arrested a number of uh, prominent pro-democracy activists, including Jimmy Lai, the publisher of Apple Daily, as well as Martin Lee, the father of a democracy in Hong Kong. For and their crime, supposedly their crime was to lead the uh, protest last summer. So this is definitely a revenge act. And Beijing also sent uh, replaced its head of Hong Kong, the Macau Affair Office in Hong Kong. Uh, they basically sent um, Xiao Baolong, who is um, uh, Xi Jinping's protege, Xi Jinping's uh, party secretary. So he basically sent his protege to Hong Kong. And Xiao Baolong is a very hard, is a very, uh, uh, very much a hardliner, I should say. You know, when in his previous post at Zhejiang province, he was led the charge of uh, taking down cross and demolish churches in, in the province. So he's very much a hardliner. And that should be a warning signal. You know, Beijing sent the hardliners to Hong Kong. And he has been very uh, aggressive. In the past, at least a decade ago, the Hong Kong and the Macau Affair Office, Beijing basically is a representative office uh, for Beijing in Hong Kong, they used to relatively remain quiet uh, when, you know, not to comment on Hong Kong's, you know, legislative affairs, again, have the, keep the appearance that Hong Kong enjoyed that semi-autonomous, you know, status. But since Xiao Baolong came to the office in March, uh, uh, February, March this year, he had been very, he has been very aggressive. He openly, uh, condemned the pro-democracy uh, legislators in Hong, 
legislators in Hong Kong legislatures and condemning them for filibusting, you know, deliberation of uh, leg legislations and openly calling for their ousting. Um, that's why we saw the image of some of those uh, legislators were carried out physically, forcefully being carried out of legislation deliberation. That's something never happened in Hong Kong before. So we see this coming. That um, it, it, the, the problem is um, China's been doing this very methodically. You know, every step leads to the next step. So every step, to me, every step they take is a test to see how the world is going to react. When the world is not paying attention, then they take the next step. Then they take the next step. So it's not, none of this act is, you know, is random. So shortly after the plans for the national security law were announced, on May 27, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said in a statement to Congress that, quote, Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from China. He goes on to say that because of this, quote, Hong Kong does not warrant treatment under U.S. laws in the same manner that laws were applied to Hong Kong before 1997. So what kind of ties has the U.S. had with Hong Kong in the past? And how will this change moving forward? United States has a very close economic tie with Hong Kong. Um, there are about 1,300 U.S. firms have either their Asia-Pacific headquarters or have their branches in Hong Kong. There are about 85,000 Americans live in Hong Kong as long-term long residents. And Hong Kong, on, on a standalone basis, is the 10th largest trading partners with the United States. And, and actually, Hong Kong is one of the few places the United States enjoy a trade surplus. Um, so economic-wise, Hong Kong is very important to the United States. And also from other standpoint, you know, think about this. For the longest time, one of the Hong Kong's values is it serves as this, um, because it's a geographic location adjacent right next to communist China, it has served as a window for both communist China to peek out to the outside, as well as for the outside world to try to peek into uh, inside to United uh, to to um, communist China, so Hong Kong has been important for United States uh, intelligence gathering, um, as well as um, you know the U.S. Navy is used to make you know several times a year make a port a stop at the Hong Kong Harbor, uh, both to rest as well as you know collect intelligence, and it just it's just one of the important stop. Um, and the Hong Kong government also closely cooperated with, uh, because it's a financial harbor, uh, a financial center. So Hong Kong government has uh, cro closely cooperated with the United States in like effort, a law enforcement uh, effort against the money, money laundering and, you know, drug dealing, you know, things like that. So Hong Kong uh, and the United States have, you know, worked together and have very, very close uh, economic and uh, intelligence ties uh, in the past. We're going to switch gears here a little bit because I would like to touch on the 31st anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Um, that just passed on June 5th. How did the people of Hong Kong pay tribute to that anniversary despite bans on commemorations? So Hong Kong people... It Hong Kong people actually took to the street um, to uh, continue to have held the, uh, continue hold the candlelight vigil. So for ever since 1989, Hong Kong is the only place 
that has been only placed under China's uh, jurisdiction that hold openly hold candlelight vigils for the 1989 uh, Tiananmen to commemorate the 1989 Tiananmen massacre. And that has to cause a great annoyances to Beijing. So this year, um, Hong Kong authorities have been, you know, tried to use the pandemic as the excuse to say, well, no large group gatherings and a gathering would be, you know, illegal. Um, but Hong Kongers defined that order and still showed up. It's a, there's some beautiful pictures of the Victoria Park where the visuals normally hold, you know, on annual basis. And that just showed you two things, right? One is the, uh, determination of Hong Kong people um, that uh, because of the annual candlelight vigil has become a per, um, basically a barometer for observers to try to engage to see how much uh, Hong Kongers uh, really want freedom. Uh, because over the years, the attendance, number of attendance has been going down. But last year, during the height of the anti-extradition uh, bill um, a movement, that the attendees of the candlelight vigil spiked up. And so this year, despite the government order that there are thousands of people showed up, that gives the observers you know, confidence that more Hong Kongers still want freedom and they will not just you know, kowtow to the communist rule without, without a fight. So, so that's important. And secondly, I think it's also important through how the Hong Kong authorities treating this event, they basically, you know, claim this is illegal and they are going to arrest Jimmy Lai again and other, you know, leaders for organizing this supposedly illegal protest. That just shows you, that's just the latest example of, you know, the erosion of political freedom in Hong Kong, that Hong Kong is really not the same city that we know. It's not the freest city anymore. And so that just, reinforced that perception. And I also want to mention that, you know, while people in Hong Kong are bravely walking in vigils to remember the Tiananmen Square massacre, um, at the same time, the Communist Party of China during the anniversary is displaying amazing hypocrisy by declaring themselves to be a beacon of human rights, as opposed to, they say, the United States. Yes. And that's um, really, you see that a lot, you, you, have, you will see that uh, even more because that's part of China's information, uh, information pro- uh, propaganda warfare. Uh, you will see China has been almost over, the uh, Chinese government almost overjoyed with the uh, domestic chaos here in the United States. And they try to uh, portray themselves as, uh, as like, you know, upheld the human rights, and they also try to make the moral equivalency of compare Hong Kong pro-democracy movement to the rioters and the violent protests we, we see in the United States. And, and what's even more laughable is um, China tried to lecture the United States. If you see the tweets from those foreign minister spokesperson, they, they even try to lecture the United States about their, you know, uh, racism and proclaim, you know, chi- you know, China, there's no racism in China, but the United States can do better with the race relations and, you know, anti-discrimination. But in the meantime, you know, they refuse to answer the question. So why, if you have no race uh, problem in China, why did you put uh, over a million Uyghurs in the internment camp? Uh, why did you discriminate against, uh, you know, uh, black peoples in southern China during the pandemic? 
you know, kicking them out of the hotel, openly have signs in the restaurant saying no black people allowed. I mean, and feel the situation in Guangzhou, uh, you know, the discrimination against the black people had become so bad that the uh, China, uh, the U.S. consulate in Guangzhou had to issue a warning, travel warnings to African-Americans telling them not to go to Guangzhou. So it's just, it, you're right, it, it is a pure hypocrisy. And when it comes to human rights issues, the, Beijing has no moral authority to advise or condemn anyone. Not at all. And, you know, on top of that, it's not news that China does not view religious freedom favorably either. Um, religion is seen as a threat to the state. And the Communist Party of China itself claims to be the authority that Chinese citizens are supposed to worship. Um, But Christians make up about 12 percent of Hong Kong's population. And as China exerts more control over Hong Kong and protests escalate over the new national security law, what are Christians in Hong Kong doing to respond and prepare? Um, I'm not sure how they respond and prepare as of now. I haven't heard much about that. But in the last year's uh, anti-extradition um, bill law, I wrote an article about the Christian move, uh, movement in Hong Kong. That the Christians have, last year's uh, movement, they have played a great, you know, very active role. And the uh, Catholic bishop, Joseph jo- uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph Joe, he openly supported the uh, movement. And many Christian um, pastors and priests, uh, basically, they showed up in protest. They helped maintain orders. And they also jointly issued statements to demand the Hong Kong authorities to hold the uh, hold the police accountable for their actions. And they also demanded, they basically take, took sides with supporting the protesters and demanded the uh, Hong Kong authorities uh, withdraw the anti-extradition, uh, withdraw the extradition bill. So Christians in Hong Kong are much more um, outspoken with the political stance than where we see everywhere else. So I don't think this new national security law will bode well to them. Um, I don't know what they're going to do because, um, you know, to me, the best action is, you know, is for Hong Kongers to leave. Um, leave, leave, leave the communist China at empty city, you know, take your talent and creativity, you know, somewhere else and, you know, leave the communist China at empty city. Let, let them have it because they are going to turn Hong Kong into another, just another Chinese city. Then let them have it and take, preserve your strength. Be water, you know, take your creativity and the, you know, prosperity and the strength uh, to somewhere else um, to, to contribute to uh, another free society rather than, you know, stick around. As Hong Kong continues to lose its freedom, where can the people go? What hope can you leave us with about next steps that might be available to Hong Kongers? Well, I'm not sure there's much hope in there. Um, I think that. Um, well, from the news that uh, we gather, that the Hong Kongers, uh, many of them are planning to leave. Uh, like I mentioned, they're planning to leave. And the United Kingdom really stepped up this time. I mean, they caused the problem. So now, at least at this time, they stepped up. Uh, uh, Boris Johnson said that they're going to offer uh, past citizenship for about 3 million Hong Kongers who hold the British uh, board overseas uh, Certificate, so that's a good relief. I think many Hong Kongers are going to take advantage of that. And also, Taiwan reported that um, 
they are seeing influx of Hong Kongers applying for migration to Taiwan. And um, they're also, uh, you know, from the South China Morning Post reported about the Hong Kongers are busy changing their Hong Kong dollar savings to uh, U.S. dollar savings. And uh, the migration, immigration offices and services has seen a spike have seen a spike of uh, inquiries about migrating to uh, other countries. So I think the best hope for Hong Kong, like I said earlier, is really just, you know, is really to leave. Because legally, you know, Hong Kong is under the jurisdiction of communist China. So, and, and Hong Kong is not the same place, it's not the same free city we see in the past. And to me, there's three pillars of why Hong Kong is so unique. It's independent judiciary, uh, it's a laser fair economic system, as well as Hong Kongers. So it's obvious that Hong Kong as a city is losing the first two, right? And the third, you know, is Hong Kongers. And I think it's, you know, it's heartbreaking for me to see because the key driving force in Hong Kong's protest now has been the use of Hong Kong. You know, so many of them have been arrested. You know, um, just last week, South China Morning Post published it on their front page. They published all the names of close to 9,000 Hong Kongers who have been arrested since last summer. And most of them are young people. So to me, that's heartbreaking that the young people should not have to you know, spend their time in, in, in jails. You know, they, they need to preserve their strength and you know, they should go somewhere else. So I'd like to see them you know, just migrate, go you know, bring their wealth and the strength to another free society to become a great addition to another free society. I'd like to see United States and uh, other countries, Western democracies, stepped up, uh, join the effort with the United Kingdom to offer Hong Kong a hope, um, open, open the door, offer them a place that they can stay. And Hong Kongers will enhance the strength and the prosperity of any place, any community that they choose, choose to settle. To me, that's the best punishment for um, and the revenge for the communist China who's determined to, you know, turn Hong Kong into another Chinese city. So let them have it. Let them have an empty city. Helen, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Carol. Thank you for listening today. If you like this episode, help us bring more attention to the show by sharing it with a friend or leaving a comment wherever you're listening. If you have a question for our team or feedback for the podcast, you can reach us at actonline at actin.org. 